Good morning. Today we're going to be continuing with Matthew's account of Jesus' suffering and death. Last week we looked at Judas's remorse and the torture of Jesus at the hands of Roman, the Roman government soldiers. And today we'll be picking that up in Matthew chapter 7, verse 32, and we'll be studying the rest of the chapter as we see Jesus going to Golgotha to die and then be buried. You can go ahead and open up your Bibles there, and we'll read that passage in a minute. Kids, if you have a Bible that we've given you, you can turn to page 834, and you'll look for the little number 32. That's where we'll begin reading in a minute. Before we read the passage, I want to tell you about a couple of stories I heard on a podcast called Cautionary Tales. One of the recent episodes of this podcast was devoted to the idea that the height of stupidity is to be too stupid to know how stupid you are. The host told two stories to illustrate his point. One story was of a bank robber named MacArthur Wheeler, who was convinced that coating his face in lemon juice would make him invisible to security cameras. When the detectives came to arrest him, he kept saying, but I wore the lemon juice, I wore the lemon juice. The other was a much more tragic story about three men who hijacked an Ethiopian Airlines flight that was en route from Addis Ababa, Ethiopia to Nairobi, Kenya. The hijackers insisted that the pilot take them to Australia, and they wouldn't listen to his pleas that there wasn't enough fuel on board to make the trip. They ended up dying in a crash landing off the coast of Africa as the engines ran out of fuel. The kind of ignorance on display in these stories is hard for us to believe. And in the case of this hijacked airplane, it cost the lives of 123 people. But as the podcaster noted, this kind of ignorance is all too common. And I think it's especially relevant to our spiritual ignorance. The natural state of people is that we put way too much confidence in our own understandings of our spiritual lives. When it comes to our sin, we're all like the robber with lemon juice on his face. We assume that we are getting away with things, that no one knows the wrong things we're doing. Like the hijackers, we assume we know where we need to go and how to get there. And like them, we are tragically wrong. We see this tragic kind of ignorance on display here in our passage as Roman and Jewish leaders and even two men being crucified mock the crucified Jesus. So let's go ahead and read this passage beginning in verse 32 of Matthew chapter 27. Listen to God's word. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. 
Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right hand and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani? That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, This man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other women were there, sitting opposite the tomb. <coughs> the next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that impostor said, while he was still alive, After three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell his people. He has risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go and make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. This is God's word. This morning, as we look at this text, we're going to look at it in, under two main headings and then ask a question at the end. So the two headings will be, Christ was despised in death. That's first. Christ was despised in death. Second, Christ was faithful in death. Christ was faithful in death. And then finally, we'll ask the question, what does the death of Christ bring out in you? 
what does the death of Christ bring out in you? So first, let's look at how Christ was despised in death. In the first part of our passage this morning, we see the way that he was despised. He was mocked by everyone. We see these four groups. The Roman soldiers, they had just finished mocking him as king and kneeling before him and placing the crown on his head and spitting on him. And now they crucify him as a criminal. The way that this story is relayed in almost a perfunctory way is like the soldiers are just going through the motions. This is just another day at the office for them, another crucifixion of another zealot. So the Roman soldiers crucify him as a criminal and they put the trumped up charges above his head and divide up his clothes. Verse 39 says that those who passed by wagged their heads and mocked him for saying that he could destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. So remember, this is occurring during the Feast of Passover. So there's tons of people in Jerusalem from all over the land. And there's passers-by making fun of what they've heard from Jesus. Then we read that the leaders of Israel also mocked him. They mocked him for his trust in God. We see that even the two robbers crucified next to him. Men who were being crucified, who you would think are in no position to make fun of anyone, they join in the mockery. Jesus was mocked by all. And the mockery comes to fulfillment in his final moment where he cries out the words of Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But these who looked on seemed to have no idea what he was saying. Commentators speculate maybe he was not able to speak clearly because he was in such agony, or maybe because he spoke in Aramaic many didn't understand. So we see this confused reaction. Some call for Elijah, thinking that maybe Elijah is going to come and they just kind of want to see what's happening. Someone else goes and gets more, more sour wine to offer him. We're not really sure what's going on, but it's clear that they're confused. We do know that this offering of the sour wine is a fulfillment of Psalm 69. In Psalm 69, verses 20 and 21, we read this. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food. And for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. So the overall impression of this scene is that those who watched Jesus die were getting caught up in a kind of revelry of hatred. This is sort of the herd instinct at its worst. The people were caught up in kind of a mob and in a fury of abusing Christ. And they're abusing him at his weakest moment. As the detail at the beginning of the story shows us he was so weak from the beating he'd received from the Roman guard that he couldn't carry his own cross. And so they forced this man, Simon of Cyrene, to carry it in his place. Jesus is at his lowest moment, and everyone is mocking him. He was despised in his death. But those who mocked him were missing what God was doing before their very eyes. You see, in the death of Jesus, God himself was drawing close to his people to save them from their sin. I want you to try to think about 
the book of Matthew as a whole. And remember that one of the main things that Matthew wants us to see in his account is that in Jesus, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus came to preach the gospel of the kingdom, the good news that the kingdom of heaven has come in his person. When we say that phrase, kingdom of heaven, what we mean is that God's great saving work of redemption and salvation has arrived as Jesus has arrived. Jesus came to save people from their sin. Heaven is breaking in and God's plan is being enacted through Jesus. When Jesus preached, he preached the kingdom. And Matthew is full of discourses of Jesus, the most famous being the Sermon on the Mount. And we know that Jesus put his kingly identity on display as he healed the lame and as he gave sight to the blind and opened deaf ears and as he cast out demons. He's put his kingdom on display as he's interacted with the Gentiles and he's shown them that even Gentiles who profess faith in him can share in the benefits of God's kingdom. But now on the cross, he is showing God's kingdom in full force. As he suffers abuse from his own people, he is showing them God's great saving work. He's showing them how God's saving work will happen. It will happen through the suffering and death of God's anointed king. God's Son, the Messiah, the Son of David, he saves by dying for his people. As they mock him, as he suffers, they are mocking God's King doing his kingly work. If the people surrounding the cross on that day outside of Jerusalem, if they had had their spiritual eyes opened, they would have been like Isaiah when he had his vision in the temple of God in Isaiah 6, he saw the Lord high and lifted up, just as Jesus was lifted up on the cross. There, Isaiah heard the seraphim proclaim, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And Isaiah felt the foundations of the threshold of the temple shake, just as an earthquake rocked Jerusalem when Jesus died and the temple veil was torn in two. When Isaiah heard this and felt this and saw the darkness caused by the smoke, he says, woe is me, for I am lost. He says, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah had some vision of the crucified and exalted Christ hundreds of years before Christ was crucified and exalted. But now he's being crucified. And the people that he came to save look on him and mock him. The Lord in all of his glory is being crucified on the cross and is displaying his glory. The one who made us is burying our sin on the cross and showing us his love for us. He's bearing the shame and mockery that sinners deserve. He's taking it on himself. And even as he does so, those sinners are mocking him. The despised Christ on the cross is the most amazing sign of God's love. That God would take on flesh 
and suffer this abuse for our sake. If you want to know what God's love is like, if you want to see God's saving power, then look at Christ despised on the cross. God's kingdom is come in Christ on the cross. But of course we see the tragic blindness of the people here. They can't see what Isaiah saw. There's no sense of what's unfolding before them. So instead of seeing Christ's suffering and seeing his love, they see a pathetic loser worthy of their ridicule. Instead of remembering Christ's words and believing them, they try to turn Christ's true words of God against him to use them to mock him. Friends, do you see what unbelief does to us? It makes fools of us. The people here in this passage are showing us what spiritual blindness looks like. And again, nowhere is their blindness on display more than when Christ cries out in Aramaic, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The people have no idea what he's saying. But this is a great rebuke to them because these are words of Scripture. And what's remarkable is that even though Christ quotes these words in, in Psalm 22 when he cries out, there have been these references to Psalm 22 throughout the mocking, as Tim referred to earlier. So when the Roman soldiers divided up Christ's clothes and cast lots for them in verse 35, they were fulfilling Psalm 22:18. They divided up my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. When the passers-by wagged their heads at Christ in verse 39, they're fulfilling Psalm 22:7. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. When the leaders of Israel say in verse 43, he trusts in God, let him deliver him now if he desires him. They're quoting Psalm 22, 8. He trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. They unknowingly, I guess, put the words of the mockers in their own mouths. And so Christ's cry of Psalm 22, verse 1, is a bit like the rooster crowing after Peter's third denial of Christ. It should have pierced the Jews who were watching on to the heart. It should have opened their eyes to the reality that they were playing a part in the drama of Scripture, the, the drama that the Scripture had prophesied, but they're playing the part of the villain, the part of the mockers. They were persecuting David's son in his hour of greatest need. Jesus' call was a, a cry that should have opened their eyes to see their sin, quoting their own precious scriptures. But look how confused they are. They don't know how to understand him. They're blind to God's saving work. And so they despise God's son and God's love. They're so completely lost in their sin that they can't see the glory of the Lord as he hangs before them on the cross, pouring himself out in love. Friends, I hope you know the same can be true of us. Spiritual blindness leads us to despise the cross of Christ. 
It leads us to despise Christ on his cross. Christ died on a cross, a shameful death to pay for sin. As you consider that, do you see Christ's love? Do you have ears to hear God's indictment of your sin? When God's word identifies your sin, the way Christ identified the, the sin of his brother Israelites in Psalm 22.1, do you stop and listen? Or do you go on with your own agenda? You despise the dying Christ. Now that word despise sounds so strong that I'm sure none of us would apply it to ourselves. None of us think we despise Christ on his cross. But I hope you know this. You don't have to outwardly mock Jesus on the cross to despise his death. We despise the death of Christ when we don't repent of our sins and trust in his death to save us. We despise the death of Christ when we don't see his love for us and take joy in it. We despise the death of Christ anytime we don't rely on his saving work for us. The people who crucified Christ, remember, they had religious justification for what they were doing. They saw Christ as a blasphemer, an enemy of God. They felt they were right, in some sense, to do what they were doing. You see, it's possible to be very religious and outwardly pious, good-looking, and yet despise the dying Christ. God shows his love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Do you see Christ's love on the cross? Are you taking hold of it by faith? Is it your hope and joy? Are you attracted to the dying Christ because he's your only hope for salvation? Or do you despise the dying Christ? We see Christ here was despised in his death. And yet, even as he was despised, Christ was faithful in his death. That's our second point this morning, our second heading. Christ was faithful in his death. I want to return to Psalm 22 to see Christ's faithfulness. I think it's normal to hear Christ's question, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And to think that the main point is Christ's sense of abandonment. So we read this question or we hear it and we think that this question of Jesus from the cross, it mainly reveals the extremity of his spiritual and psychological and emotional and physical suffering. Now, I do think it reveals those things, but I think we need to see this quotation in the whole of the psalm, so I'm so glad we read it earlier, because I think it helps us see Christ's faithfulness in his crucifixion. Another reason we can say this is because this passage of Scripture, Matthew 27, it does allude to the whole psalm. It's not just alluding to this first line, so it's right that we should take the whole psalm into account. And when we do that, we see that it is a psalm of lament, but it's also a prayer of faith. It's a, a prayer of faith from someone who's come to the very end of themselves and who realizes they have no earthly or human source of hope. And their only hope 
is in God. This is what we see in Christ. Even as he suffers the evil of crucifixion and mockery from his brothers, and his, his hope is in God. I just want to review a couple of verses that we read earlier. First, let's start with verse 8, which when the religious leaders say to Jesus, He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. After that verse in the psalm, the psalmist replies, Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth. And from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. So again, even as he feels forsaken, even as he hears these people mock him as, a, as one who trusts in God, he prays that God would be near him. And he confesses, there's no one here that's going to help me. He knows that he must turn to God as his only hope. Now listen to verses 18 through 20 from the psalm where we read about the people dividing up his garments. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. I never had noticed that phrase, the power of the dog, before until I read a novel that was called The Power of the Dog had nothing to do with this psalm, but they took the name from this psalm. Jesus is faced with the power of death. These evildoers surround him. And he pleads to God to be near him, not to be far away. Even as his clothes are divided up and the evildoers surround him, he prays for God's nearness. So it kind of leaves us wondering, what's going to happen? Is God near to the sufferer or has God completely forsaken him? Well, let's look how the psalmist starts to wind up in verses 23 through 26. He says, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. And stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. <clears throat> Despite all that he is suffering, the psalmist believes that he will live to tell the tale of God's mercy and salvation to his brothers. He directs his brothers to look to God and be in awe of God because God hears the affliction of the afflicted. He believes, he professes his faith that God has heard him when he cried out. Those who looked on Christ offered him sour wine to drink, but Christ professes the afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Jesus' cry of Psalm 22 then can't mean that in the end, Jesus gives up hope on the Father. Well, you know that Christ doesn't give up hope. He suffered perfectly. And this psalm actually reveals that the complete opposite is true. In his dying, Christ professes faith with the words of this psalm. Christ was faithful to the end. 
to the end, even as he endured the wrath of God and suffered the scorn of sinners, he was perfectly faithful. He perfectly trusted that God would deliver him. We know that he would not be spared death. He knew that he would not be spared death, but he knew that death would not have the final word. In the words of the psalm, he would be delivered from death. But after undergoing it. Brothers and sisters, isn't it beautiful to look on the faithfulness of Jesus? He was perfect in faith, even as he suffered this excruciating torture. And we see how the psalmist ends and his last prophecy comes true. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. Hasn't this come true for us? His righteousness has been proclaimed to us. He has done it. It is finished. And we, his posterity, serve him. We have the privilege of serving him. And now we have the privilege of doing what was done to us. Christ's righteousness was preached to us. Now we get to preach it to those yet unborn. He has done it. It's our privilege to proclaim the faithfulness of Christ. We have the privilege of telling this to our neighbors. We can say to them, here is hope for your troubled soul. Look to the faithful Christ who died on the cross for sin, yet without sin. At the hour of Christ's death, Matthew records this collection of amazing and really bewildering events. He says, Behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. No man could have torn this into. The earth shook. The rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. Now, there are lots of questions about this passage that we just can't answer, especially about these people who rose from the dead and who they appeared to. But there are a few things that seem clear. One is that all these signs are evidence that God was at work through the death of Jesus. God had come near in Christ's death. These are signs that we see throughout the Bible when God appears. So on Mount Sinai, the earth shakes. In Isaiah 6, the foundations of the temple shake. God is at work. It's clear enough that something strange is happening, that even the Roman soldier and those who were with them can proclaim, truly, this is the Son of God. I'll just remember, every time Roman soldiers have been mentioned in the previous context, they're abusing Jesus. Maybe this guy has a piece of Jesus' clothing in his hands that he won when casting lots. And he's looking up saying, truly, this was the Son of God. God was at work in Christ's death. The second thing we can see from these events is that this tearing of the temple curtain is hugely symbolic. 
The kingdom of God has come in Christ. So no longer will people worship God by coming through the physical temple. Now they will come through Christ. The old temple has passed away and the new temple of Christ has come. This tearing of the curtain symbolizes that believers can now enter into God's very presence as they are clothed in Christ's righteousness. In the words of Hebrews 10, 19, and 20, we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain, not that temple curtain, through the curtain that is his flesh. Because of the faithfulness of Christ on the cross, sinful people can enter the presence of God as those made pure by Christ's blood. There is hope for sinners. Brothers and sisters, this is our hope. We can go with confidence to God's throne of grace because we are washed by Christ. And this is the hope for our neighbors. Our neighbors desperately need this good news. They don't have to remain in their sin. But the faithful Christ has made a way through his suffering for sinners to approach God. And in this strange thing of the opening of the tombs, we see the reality of what Paul proclaimed, that the resurrected Jesus is the first fruits of those who have died in faith. Death has been defeated by Jesus. And death could not keep the faithful Christ. He died without sin. And even in his suffering, he did not sin. Even in his dying, he never abandoned hope in God's goodness to him. Again, this is our hope and it's our message. We are those who have been raised with Christ. We are the resurrected ones. By faith in him, we are dead to sin and we are alive to God. And our neighbors need to hear of this good news too. We proclaim that there is life. We proclaim this to people who live in a world ruled by sin and suffering. The risen Christ has conquered death, and he is our only hope. Christ was faithful in death. Even as he cries out in the ninth hour, shrouded in darkness, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He also proclaims that God has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. God does not hide his face from those who cry out, but he hears them when they cry to him. He hears us when we cry to him. Brother and sister, Christ hears you when you cry to him. He doesn't despise you in your affliction. Look to Christ He was faithful in death, and he was not put to shame. No one who trusts in him is put to shame. In the midst of your dark night of the soul, cry out to God. You can use this psalm. You can pray to him, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I feel like a worm and not a person, God. But I hope in you, and I know you hear my cry. By the power of the faithful Christ, we also can endure in the face of suffering. Christ was despised in death, but he was also faithful in death. And so he is our hope. 
And so what does Christ's death bring out to you? What does it bring out in your soul as you stare at the death of Christ? How do you respond to it? The last part of our passage raises this question by showing us two responses to Christ's death. On the one hand, we see the response of Joseph of Arimathea and the women who followed Jesus. And then on the other hand, we see the response of the religious leaders. We get these two kind of parallel stories. In both stories, we have someone going to see the governor Pilate and making a request of the of Pilate, which Pilate grants. And then in both stories, the person goes to the tomb of Jesus. It may look like these are kind of incidental details, but I think these passages, or these words about Joseph and the women, show us faith in Christ, even in his death. Notice that they don't run away from Jesus the way the disciples had run away from Jesus just the night before. These disciples of Jesus, Joseph and the women, they stay with Jesus to the end. They don't despise the dead Jesus, but they seek to honor him. We're told that these women were there at the crucifixion and they were there at the burial. Now, we're not told what they were thinking or feeling or what they understood, but isn't their simple following of Jesus powerful? Wherever Jesus went, they followed him. They had followed Jesus when he was in Galilee and they ministered to his needs. They followed Jesus as he made his trip from Galilee to Jerusalem. They followed Jesus to the cross. And now they're going to follow him to the tomb. From an apologetic standpoint, some uh, skeptics argue that when the women went to the tomb and found it empty on Sunday, that they must have been confused about the location of the tomb. They weren't confused. They saw Joseph put his body in the tomb. They were there. They were there. They saw it. They followed Jesus. No matter where he was or what state he's in, they followed him. Now, Joseph of Arimathea is an interesting case because he can't claim the same consistency. We're told in other Gospels that he was one of the religious leaders. He was part of the Jewish council. But we're also told that he had kept his discipleship a secret out of, the fe out of a fear of the Jews, of the other Jewish leaders. But now that Jesus has died... You think the logical thing for Joseph of Arimathea to do would be like to wash his hands. Like, well, I'm glad I avoided shaming myself by identifying with that guy. But now, in Jesus' death, he sticks his neck out. He goes to the Roman governor. I think by now the Roman governor's had enough of Jewish leaders coming to him. He goes and he asks for Jesus' body. And he doesn't secret Jesus' body away into the pauper's graves. He puts him in a, a new tomb, a tomb that no other body had ever been laid in, that he had cut from a rock. He buries Jesus in a prominent place. He gives Jesus an extravagant burial. So Joseph of Arimathea chose the moment of Jesus' death as the time to come out as a follower of Jesus and to stake his claim as one allied to Jesus. Joseph and these women didn't despise Jesus in his death. They didn't use Jesus' death as an excuse to abandon Jesus or abandon their faith. Jesus' death was simply an occasion for their next step of following Jesus. 
Now, it's going further than the text goes to say that we know for sure they buried Jesus in the hope of his resurrection on Sunday. But given the public shame attached to Jesus, crucified as a thief, what explanation can you give for why they attended so carefully to the burial of Jesus? They continued trusting in him and following him. Whatever the case with Joseph and the women, we know now that the death of Jesus is not a reason to abandon him. The burial of Jesus was a, was a step in God's plan to save. As we just confessed with the Heidelberg Catechism, it proves that he was really dead. He suffered real death. God visited death in Christ, but he didn't come to stay in death. Do you trust in Jesus' death? Are you willing to be identified with the crucified Messiah? And by that I mean, are you willing to say, I am a sinner and I deserve death, but I'm trusting in what Jesus did. Jesus who died and was buried, I'm trusting in him to pay for my sin. Are you willing to be identified with the crucified Messiah? Do you trust in Jesus, the one who died and was buried? That's one response to death, the death of Jesus. But the other one is the response of the Pharisees and the religious leaders. Like Joseph of Arimathea, they pay Pilate a visit. They've got a request for him as well. They want to make sure the dead Jesus stays in his tomb. And so they ask for his permission to set a guard over it. Now these are extreme measures. They seal the stone, a large stone, and then... They set a watch over it, at least until the end of Sunday. They say that they're worried about grave robbers, that the disciples will come in and they'll uh, steal the body and fake a resurrection. But you do have to wonder if they're worried about more than this. I mean, they've seen the darkness descend over Jerusalem for three hours. They felt the earth shake. By now, they must have known what happened to that curtain in the temple. Maybe they're a little nervous. It strikes me as funny that if they really believed that resurrection was possible, did they think that the, the sealed stone would keep him in there? That the Roman guard would be able to kill him again? But they come to Jesus, haunted by his prediction of resurrection, continuing to hurl accusations against him. It wasn't enough to mock him when he was alive on the cross. They're still calling him an imposter. And Pilate grants their request. Go and make it as secure as you can. And they did. They made that tomb as secure as they could. And it wasn't very secure. Now these men had a vested interest in making sure that Jesus didn't rise from the dead or even appear to rise from the dead. I wonder if you feel that way. You know, a dead Jesus is really no threat to anyone. If Jesus is still dead, then nothing that we're doing here has any meaning. Nothing that the scriptures or Christians say about him has any real significance. But if Jesus is alive, that's a much different story. If Jesus is alive, then he really was who he said he was. The righteous son of God who had no sin of his own and died in the place of sinners. If Jesus is alive, 
then he is ruling and reigning. And you will face him. And you must deal with the way you've treated his death and resurrection. So what does Christ's death bring out of you? Christ calls us to die with him. Well, this doesn't mean we have to physically die, but that we have to see how our sin needs to be put to death. And we have to see that our sin can only be put to death when it is nailed to the cross, when we trust in Christ's death to pay for it. We need to see that we must be buried with Christ and that we need the resurrection life that only Jesus can give. We die and live with Christ by repenting of our sin and trusting in Him, and trusting in His work, in His death, in His burial, in His resurrection. Are you willing, like Joseph and the woman, to trust in Christ crucified for sin? Or are you offended by Christ crucified? The crucified Christ calls you to come face to face with your sin, to see that it deserves judgment from God. The crucifixion of Christ paints a picture of the hell that your sin deserves. Are you willing to hear that from Christ? Are you willing to hear what God is saying to you through Jesus crucified and buried? Or are you like the religious leaders of Israel? who had a vested interest in suppressing the truth about the resurrection and ignoring the truth about the resurrection of Christ from the dead. Christ was raised, and his resurrection proves his righteousness. He is the Son of God. He's the King who rules over you and me, and you will face him. And so will you face him with joy as one who believes when you see him, will you rejoice? Because you will be like him when you see him as he is. Or will you face him as a terrible judge? Will you face the one that you tried to ignore and whose death you despised? Jesus was despised in death, yet he was perfectly faithful in death. What does Jesus' death bring out in you? Let's pray. Our Father, we ask you to give us eyes to see Christ in his glory. Father, if our hearts have grown callous, if our eyes are foggy, open them, soften us. Help us to rejoice. Pierce our hearts if need be with fresh conviction of sin. Help us not to be cynical, but to be joyful as we gaze upon Christ, the exalted Christ who was crucified and who died and was buried and who rose again for us. Father, we pray that you would use your word that's been preached this morning to bring people to life. We pray that you would help us to be those who proclaim Christ's righteousness to our neighbors. Father, give us a sense of urgency to spread this good news because our neighbors are dying in darkness. We pray that Christ would be exalted, that his posterity would serve him as the gospel is preached. 
And Jesus, we thank you that you loved us and gave yourself for us. We pray in praise of your name. Amen.